Welcome back for another episode of Today in Space. I hope you enjoyed your 4th of July celebrations for those of you in the U.S. Now it's back to business, or space business, that is. To begin, I'd like to talk about a video that Elon Musk and SpaceX released of the camera on board the first ever recovered fairing for SpaceX on the Falcon Heavy STP-2 mission we talked about last time. For anyone that doesn't know, the fairing on a rocket is the cover over the payload that is being delivered to orbit. It's on there to help protect the payloads on board from being damaged as the vehicle exits the atmosphere, and it also makes the vehicle more aerodynamic to get through the atmosphere and actually deliver things into orbit. Once it's done, it gets jettisoned safely away from the rocket once there is essentially no more atmosphere left to cause any damage or harm the satellites or spacecraft on board the vehicle. Now, these fairings have historically been dropped and recovered after launch, but not reused. This brings an even higher price tag to anyone looking to get to orbit as these they can't be reused, so they're they're being wasted, um, and they're you're paying for one time. It's like buying a ticket. I love this example. It's like buying a ticket from uh, Boston to L.A. and you throw the plane out afterwards. It's going to be very expensive. What makes them historically impossible to re- to reuse the fairings is they typically fall into the ocean after launch. Salt water and spacecraft are not friends. Uh, once a fairing falls into the ocean, it becomes too expensive to repair them and reuse them. So the cost of one fairing for SpaceX is $6 million, which typically there are two fairings for each launch vehicle. The one fairing constitutes 10% of the total launch cost. So figuring out a way to recover these and safely reuse them could bring lots of value to any customers delivering their payloads into orbit and can help stimulate a business in space. Now, after the Falcon Heavy STP-2 mission, SpaceX has successfully recovered a fairing for the first time without touching the water. They needed to use a ship called Miss Tree to chase the fairing on its way back to Earth as it glides using altitude thrusters and steerable, a steerable parachute to get right underneath it and catch it. As I mentioned before, the video from onboard the fairing released by SpaceX and Elon Musk on Twitter, it, it's, it's really amazing to watch. I highly recommend watching it. The link is in this episode's description or page on todayinspace.net. There were blue light particles apparently created from atmospheric reentry, and it looks like the thing is going through warp, like in Star Trek, if you only catch a little bit of it. So you don't really know what you're looking at, and it was really nice that Elon Musk had on there a short description of what was happening there. And when I saw the video, my mind instantly went to thinking about science communication, proper science communication. What I mean is, if that video had just been released and didn't have any context, then anyone could just make up what they thought they were looking at. And unless someone was there to correct them, we could all believe the same wrong thing. It brought me back to what I've been reading about in Chasing the Moon by Robert Stone and Alan Andres. You can get the free book, uh, free audiobook with a trial of Audible by going to audibletrial.com slash todayinspace. But when you look back at the history of the space industry to the space race, there was a, an initial concern from engineers and astronauts that having video on board the spacecraft would be a bad idea. I mean, obviously, you could give up information to the Russians, so obviously that makes sense. But there seemed to just be a lot of resistance to doing so and not a lot of 
great from it. But after some uh, amazing work internally, the push was to put a camera on board so that the taxpayers could see what their money was paying for. Granted, it was the late 1960s camera equipment, one of the first portable cameras of its kind, and the image quality was terrible to today's standards, but for the first time, everyone, especially people passionate about space, could see what it looked like to ride a rocket and go into space. They were communicating to the public what they were doing. I I think the space industry today operates very much in the same ways of communication as we did back in the heyday of the space program. It just seems very stagnant, and it's pretty evident if you compare a launch broadcast of NASA or pretty much any other launch vehicle competitor uh, to SpaceX. What SpaceX is doing to help communicate to space nerds like myself and anyone with a cell phone or internet connection during a launch is not the norm. So SpaceX is doing a great job, and even NASA doesn't have a camera on the spacecraft as long as SpaceX does during a launch. There's an excessive use of simulated images with other launches where you don't even see what's happening. Or worse, when something does happen, the animation isn't updated, so you just stare at the simulation of what should be happening, but actually isn't. And it's very frustrating. Even NASA isn't releasing immediate footage of launches or tests like SpaceX did with the fairing recovery. And look, SpaceX got that idea from NASA originally, and their openness is obviously, in my opinion, in honor of how open NASA has been over the years. It could NASA could easily tell us nothing, like it did for so long in the early days of the space race, or like how Blue Origin operates today. You only see their public launches and progress, otherwise you're completely in the dark of what they're doing. But, back to my original point, when space interest dropped... NASA made a change during the space race to get public interest back into the fold as they entered the second half of the directorate from President JFK. They had all of this interest and funding and support to get the Saturn V made and launch the first humans, but at that point, about five years in, interest had gone away and has a- had actually shifted against the space program before they were even finished with the 10-year plan. You would hear the time-old argument of why are we spending this money trying to get off the planet when we have so many issues on the planet. Any mission that is going to be game-changing or can make a difference, like landing on the moon with Apollo 11, needs to take time. There's so much involved between training for the astronauts to developing the technology to accomplish those goals it's going to take some time to actually happen. And it seems like it's a trend of a space program to fight to stay relevant after the four or five year mark. It's like people don't have the patience or the foresight to see through a 10 year project and keep support up long enough. But there's a lot of reasons that could happen. A lot of factors are involved politically. Every four years, it's possible that people who are in position at the start are no longer there, leaving a gap in leadership. It's also possible that the ones promoting space are focused on keeping the program going, but are not adapting to the world around them, and by proxy, their original argument becomes old and outdated. Then there is just the sheer fact of life that people are impatient. Four to five years after you think big things can happen, and they don't, people become cynical. So the question is, how does NASA of today, 2019 NASA, fight to make sure that Artemis 2024, the mission to the moon, back again, the first woman and next man on the moon, 
How does that survive the statistical likelihood that interest or belief in the program will fall? We are living in a time where space is a theme you literally see everywhere. I mean, yes, we talk about it all the time here on the podcast, but just look around you. Commercials, movies, TV shows, kids' books, space interest is at a high right now. And we have an administration who is backing the space program and an administrator who is bold enough to agree to a five-year plan to the moon. Half the amount of time it took Apollo to land on the moon. I'm going to guess, based on what I know about history and what I've learned about history so far, and how quickly support flips for space programs, as I've seen through my life, that before 2024, NASA is going to face major issues with support, either publicly or politically. And that's assuming they develop and test all of the technologies needed for the mission in time as well, which is not a great assumption if you look at NASA's trend for meeting deadlines the last decade or so, especially with the space launch system. While I may be very optimistic that this is the time for NASA to go back to the moon, I'm also very aware that there are major milestones that will need to be overcome. My hope is that NASA and the contractors involved on the Artemis mission are ready for the next five years. The thing that makes me really optimistic, however, is the coexistence of SpaceX and companies like Blue Origin that are also working on bringing humans into space and back to the moon and Mars. Unlike the space race of the 1960s and 70s, the world has both the private industry and governments individually aiming to bring regular human spaceflight into reality. So if one fails, there's still momentum behind the other players in the new space race. So we can rejoice when NASA has a successful test like they just did for the crew abort system uh, for the space launch system, because that means there's another item checked off the massive list that gets us back to the moon for good. But we also can't delude ourselves to think that just because we have a plan and support now for a mission to the moon, that we will continue to have support as we get closer to that deadline. NASA, in my opinion, needs to start now communicating their development of the Artemis mission to the public. The earlier we can get people excited about our return to the moon, the better. And let's be honest, other than hearing about it from me on this podcast, have you heard or seen anyone talk about our return to the moon in the mainstream? Maybe once or twice? In any case, it's not enough. We can't go into our potential drought of space interest without any momentum of communicating the Artemis program to the public. I will do my best here on the podcast, but if they don't communicate, how can I relate the information to you? And and how can any of us get excited? That is why I love what SpaceX is doing and why I was able to write a whole episode off of one video, one clip of one mission that Elon Musk tweeted out. To close out this episode, I will read part two of JFK's We Choose to Go to the Moon speech at Rice University in Texas on September 12th, 1962. Again, there will be sporadic JFK impressions, and I have my transcript, so let's begin. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolutions, the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to flounder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it, 
for the eyes around the world now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first, and therefore we intend to be first. In short, our leadership in science and in industry, our hopes for peace and security, our obligations to ourselves as well as others all require us to make this effort to solve these mysteries, to solve them for the good of all men, and to become the world's leading spacefaring nation. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man, and only if the United States occupies its position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. I do not say that we should or will go unprotected against the hostile misuse of space any more than we go unprotected against the hostile use of land or sea, but I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind, and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? And then the crowd goes wild. We choose to go to the moon. He has to pause. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win, and the others too. It is for these reasons that I regard the decision last year to shift our efforts in space from low to high gear as among the most important decisions that will be made during my incumbency in the office of the presidency. In the last 24 hours, we have seen facilities now being created for the greatest and most complex exploration in man's history. We have felt the ground shake and the air shattered by the testing of a Saturn C-1 booster rocket, many times as powerful as the Atlas, which launched John Glenn, generating power equivalent to 10,000 automobiles with their accelerators on the floor. We have seen the site where the F-1 rocket engines, each one as powerful as all eight engines of the Saturn combined, will be clustered together to make the advanced Saturn missile, assembled in a new building to be built at Cape Canaveral, as tall as a 48-story structure, as wide as a city block, and as long as two lengths of this field. Within these last 19 months, at least 45 satellites have circled the Earth. 
Some 40 of them were made in the United States of America. And they were far more sophisticated and supplied far more knowledge to the people of the world than those of the Soviet Union. The Mariner spacecraft, now on its way to Venus, is the most intricate instrument in the history of space science, which given how 50 years later or so, how, how much that has changed. I'll go back to it here. The accuracy of that test shot is comparable to firing a missile from Cape Canaveral and dropping it in this stadium between the 40-yard lines. Transit satellites are helping our ships at sea to steer a safer course. Tiro satellites have given us unprecedented warnings of hurricanes and storms, and will do the same for the forest fires and icebergs. We have had our failures, but so have others, even if they do not admit them, and they may be less public. To be sure, we are behind, and will be behind for some time in man's flight, but we do not intend to stay behind. And in this decade, we shall make up and move ahead. I could not believe how relevant this part of JFK's speech was to the exact point we are in right now with the Artemis mission. Yes, some of the technology was being tested, but the final launch vehicle and spacecraft were not finished when JFK gave this speech. He wasn't even talking about the Saturn V yet. It, it hadn't in, been created yet. That's right, the actual vehicle that the astronauts would eventually land on the moon with, never mind orbit the moon beforehand with Apollo 8, was not even in existence yet. So we know that accomplishing feats like this is possible, but we also know that 50 years after Apollo 11, that accomplishing something of that nature is rare and difficult. And literally everything got in the way for them. I hope we are ready to handle the backlash of disinterest when it comes, even though I wish it wouldn't. And we'll keep the momentum going on over here at Today in Space, and we wish the team at NASA all the best as they do their hard work to get the technology up and running, and we wish the best of luck for them trying to find a way to better communicate the Artemis mission and build public interest as we move to the 2024 mission deadline. And that does it for this week's episode. Again, thank you for joining us and for staying this long. I appreciate you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Today in Space Pod. Our Facebook page is Today in Space Podcast. If you check us out on the website, todayinspace.net, you can listen, watch, or read our episodes and enjoy them however you like best. If you're interested in 3D printing, check out AG3D Printing on Instagram at AG3D Printing, where I post all of the project I, I have going on. Um, AG3D is also an idea workshop where I can help bring your ideas into reality using 3D printing. So if you're in need, head over to ag3d-printing.com and find out more there. You can also email me at ag3d.engineering at gmail.com if you're interested in a quote for your next project. AG3D helps fund the podcast and helps me get new fun machines to play with and make things with. Uh, at the very least, follow us and learn more about the amazingness that is 3D printing through my engineering shenanigans. Other than that, don't forget, you can get a free audiobook on us by going to audibletrial.com slash todayinspace. I'm still burning through chasing the moon right now. It's been great since I've been in a lot of traffic lately. Audiobooks hit the spot when you've run out of podcasts to listen to and your music playlists have gotten old. Anything to keep you from slowly slipping into madness as you go 20 miles an hour on a highway for 30 minutes and the speed limit is 60 miles an hour. I hope you have a great week. Stay on the course and make sure to spread love and spread science. See you next time.